Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. The marriage supper of the Lamb, because Passover is approaching, we know how significant that event is for all of us, and Pastor Adrian alluded to that in his... um, in his presentation, but I want to do it from the perspective of a little word that is very, very common to all of us as Christians. It's the word faith. Because Jesus Christ made a profound statement in Luke 18:8, and he says, he asks, "When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith?" On the earth. Who was he talking to? Is Christ coming back to expect the unconverted to be faithful? Or he expects his church, his bride, to be faithful? Growing up, you know, being familiar with the Bible and all of that, I remember hearing this statement over and over again. But I always interpret it to mean that Christ is really coming back to find faithful people, everybody being faithful to him. But I think one of the misunderstandings that we sometimes as Christians tend to, or something we tend to overlook all the time, is that a great portion of the scriptures is aimed at us converted people, the church. Christ is coming back to marry a bride. Which most of us here, I guess, are married. And if you have an unfaithful bride, it's going to lead to a breakdown in the relationship. We don't need to guess about that. So the question for all of us as we approach the Passover, because we know Jesus Christ is concerned about his bride. That's why he made the statement, will I find faith? When I return to the earth? Am I coming to a faithful people? Am I going to marry into this family of faithful people? And historically, or biblically, from the Bible at least, we know how faith, or what faith means to him, because of the relationship he had with his chosen people, Israel. So serious, he took them so seriously that in one, in one, in one instant, he said, you know what, Israel, I'm going to have to divorce you. Divorce is a hard thing. Some of us have been through that. It's not an easy experience to go through. It's like losing a limb. You talk to some people who have gone through it. It's hard. On yourself, on family, and on friends. So as a member of this body that Jesus Christ is going to marry, so the question is for us, will you be among the faithful? 
as we approach this Passover season, where we are going to come to sip of this cup, will you be among that faithful? Because look, Jesus Christ, towards the ending of the, the Passover, he had with his, the last Passover he had with his disciples in Matthew 26, 28, after he advised about, you know, the take, eat, this is my body, drink, this is my blood, he asked. In verse 28 he says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. I will not take this cup until that day when I drink, I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there is an event coming for all of us. And we have all been given that invitation. We have all been called and invited to attend this great supper. This marriage of the Lamb to His bride. We have the invitation. That's why we are here. That's why we are in the body. That's why we are taking Passover. That's why we do all the things He has commanded that we should do. Because we have the invitation. There's an RSVP on it. We have answered yes. You know when you get your wedding invitation? There's always an RSVP on it. Are you coming? Yes or no? So we all have that invitation. We are going. I sincerely believe everyone sitting here has that desire to go. Because the lives that we are living or should be living should demonstrate the fact that we are a people of faith. We belong to a bride that is faithful. From way back to the fall of humanity in Eden, Jesus Christ, Yeshua, had his eyes on his bride. As far back. Because that is where he created the first marriage. The first human family in Adam and Eve. Nowadays you hear all of this thing about different type of marriage and I don't know if someone... I don't know if yesterday we had a, last night we had a, a little talk around our devotion table. I don't remember which one of my children asked about um, someone marrying a, a tree or a car or animal or whatever. Because nowadays marriage has been relegated to anything. If I love my car, I can marry my car. If I love my dog, I can marry my dog. Because, yeah, that's right. This is not what God intended from the beginning. And no wonder we are misdirected and we draw all kind of conclusions nowadays about, about what is right from what is wrong. So we know the first marriage was, was established in that environment in Eden. Because God himself is a family. We see the clear picture of father, son, children, and now the bride. The bride was missing. But Christ is coming now to finish when he establishes his kingdom. The other aspect 
of it, the bride, when he married, he gets married to the church. But what went down in Eden is typical of what would come later on, as we are now contending with. When we live in a so-called postmodern era with all kind of relativity as far as truth is concerned. I live my life the way I want it. If it feels good, it's okay. And don't tell me about your truth or whatever. But in this environment, the people of God, the faithful people of God, will have to stand up to be counted among the faithful. It's not anything goes, for sure. It's not anything goes. So what went down, we see an enmity was created between God and man through disobedience of what happened with Adam and Eve. But we won't go through that because you, you're familiar with what went down there. They were put to the test. They failed. First, Adam failed. Here comes the need for a second Adam. And he looks out at one point in history and he says, here is a man, a very rich man, not rich in coins and dollars and pesos and yen and so on, but in possession, maybe a lot of livestock, so on, Abraham. You know when you live in an environment quite comfortable, how it's difficult to move? You've been living all this place for years. Have you only the business here and you have to move because of certain circumstances? It's difficult. And here God says to this man, get up out of your country. I'm going to send you somewhere else. It must have been really difficult for Abraham. Not that he's going to drive down on the 401 or call you hall to help. We're talking about the days of old. Technology nowhere compares to what is happening now. But God said, get up, Abraham. I have a mission for you. Abraham did just that. It's no wonder he's called the father of the faithful. And what transpires of that? Uh, after that, we know how he begot children and so on. He was put to the test to sacrifice his own son. Was about willing to do that. Again, you see that test. Imagine you have one child. One child. The love you have for that one child, only you alone can explain that. Yet, he was willing to do it. Who was going to do it? God tested him and he proved to be faithful. So through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look at the connection. Being so faithful, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's no wonder he asks the statement again. Will I find faith among my people? I find it in Abraham. And I'm coming back to marry this bride. And I want a faithful bride. Nothing more, nothing less. The plan is being worked out. And so, 
the seeds are sown and generations come after generation. They multiply. The sons of Abraham begot sons and so on and so on. So there came a time in history. And you all know the story. You don't have to go through that. When they went into sin, captivity, into Egypt. They lost all semblance of who the God of their fathers were. Again, through disobedience. There comes a time when another faithful man, a deliverer from God, God appointed in the person of Moses, went down there, had all these encounters with the Pharaoh, the mighty Pharaoh, did accordingly. There comes a time when the exodus began. Now here's a set of grumbling people, cantankerous people, unfaithful people. After all what God has done to them, their faith was like zero. Because they kept going back, thinking of what happened or what they did in Egypt. You know, Egypt was the superpower. Because we had all these hearty flesh pots, all these bounty of the harvest. We were slaves, but we ate well. We sat around the fires at night and we had all these conversations and we had all these meat, be it unclean meats and all of that, all the onions and all the leeks, all the, the fertileness of the Nile we inherited. And it was good. Why did this God, this so-called God, brought us into the wilderness to suffer? That was their gratitude. After they saw the miracle of the Red Sea. After they saw the miracle with the mighty Pharaoh had to give up. They saw all of that. They saw all of that. And yet they kept grumbling. It's like us today. Humanity today. The more they get, the more they want. And God brought them through all of that. Imagine in the, in the blackness of a wilderness. A wilderness, there's no green. There's most likely gray, uh, gray or brown. Desert sand and rocks. And you wake up in the morning. And you see a cloud. The presence of a cloud. And you know that God is there with you. Imagine that. Every single morning. For 40 years. And at night. In the pitch blackness. No electricity. Only the celestial glow. Of the sun and the moon. The lunar presence. And a fire. Symbolizes the presence of God. And you know God is with you. Because this is extraordinary. This is abnormal. This doesn't happen to any other nation but Israel. And guess what? They complain and they complain. Oh, I want meat. Where is the meat that we had in Egypt? God said, I'm going to give it to you. Here comes the quails. and Gourmet style, you know, because quail is very expensive today. You can buy it in the supermarket. We want something more. 
here comes the waivers, the, the manna. You don't have to toil the soil for that. It comes from the skies, the blessings of God. We want water. Where is the fresh water? We could go down to the Nile and get all this fresh water. We are in the wilderness. Moses, why did you bring us here to die? And they got it. What else could Israel have wanted and they did not get? What happened to their faith? You think of these stories and you say to yourself in this year of our Lord, the 21st century, we are blessed because we believe but we do not necessarily see the things that Israel saw. They had it first hand, not second hand, first hand. But God says, He was disappointed, Jeremiah 3 8, because we see some things, a situation where later in later years, after all the miracles that the children saw by the hand of the, the God of, their, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they still rebelled and disobeyed and commit whoredom against the true and living God. And the merciful God he is, the merciful God he is, still never gave up on them. He said in Jeremiah 3, 7, I thought, after she had done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not. And her treacherous sister Judah, she saw it too. I saw that for all the adulteries, yes, the adulteries, the adulteries, because they courted other gods. Just like what we see today. Every other God gets the respect except the Christian God. You see it everywhere. From the leadership right down. I saw the adulteries of faithless Israel. I had sent her away, her away and given her a writ of divorce and your treacherous sister. These are heavy language. Treacherous. Sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. But brethren, you can't get it worse than that. Harlotry. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees beyond the norm. Beyond the norm. He asked. Jeremiah 10. Yet in spite of this, her church was Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, come in a different, in, in a different way. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, repent, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Brethren, is it there any wonder? Is there, is there any wonder why Jesus Christ is asking this question? Will I find faith among my people? 
Will you be, as a faithful servant of God, will you be at that marriage supper that he looks forward so much to when he marries his bride? Verse 11. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words and they have gone after the other gods. The other gods. We see the parallel there again to postmodern era, so-called postmodern era that we are in. The house of Israel, the house of Judah have broken my agreement, my covenant which I made with their fathers. So he asked in Isaiah 51, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your lawlessness and your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. In Jeremiah 2.19, he goes on to say, Your own wickedness will correct you. And your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. So brethren, we can see in the Old Testament, Israel is depicted as God's bride in several, several prophecies. Well, she was declared a faithless wife. You know, after he declared himself a husband to Israel. You see the terminology of family and marriage and so on. But Israel broke the marriage covenant. She became a spiritual adulteress. Jeremiah 3.9 So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defied the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. In Ezekiel 16, we see where God discusses this at length. <laughs> As I say, you can't get it any worse. He called Israel a degenerate harlot. Wow. This is God talking. Heavy, heavy language. Heavy, heavy language. He said, how degenerate is your heart? Seeing that you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot, you erected your shrine at the head of every road, and you build your high place in every street. Yet you are not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You know, why, why men, are, well men too, yes, men and women go into harlotry. Because of the money. Right? Well, we just said where Israel was in, money wasn't seen to, to have been at the top. They scorn payment. He said, you're an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men, listen to this, men make payments to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you. Offered them money instead. Wow. Wow. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry. Because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment 
but no payment was given you therefore you are the opposite when you read what is happening in our societies today and you have you're a bit familiar with what went on with God's relationship with Israel brethren the clear parallels are so obvious with what is happening I was struck about three weeks ago, and to this day I'm wondering if I heard right. And it's something I have to confirm, so I'm saying this without confirmation. But I think I overheard on the radio where there's a move in England that if your charitable church or charitable organization, which is the church, what a church in quotation, of course, um, starts to preach that the God of the Bible is the only true God, you will lose your status as a charity. I have to research that. I'm wondering if I heard what right. But you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if that is true. Because of what is going on nowadays. Because as long as it's the God of the Bible, anything goes. Anything goes. In the New Testament, the church is depicted as Christ's bride. We see that again clearly. Is coming to marry the church. Husbands, he says in Ephesians 5.25, Love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the world that he might present, present her to himself a glorious church. Not having a spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. He wants faithful bride. In Ephesians 5.25, sorry, in, in, in Revelation 21.2, we see that too. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We see that as well. Second Corinthians eleven two. Paul writes, I am jealous of you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, a faithful virgin to Christ. Brethren, we have in the holy word of God examples that have been left to us not to repeat and yes we are human beings it it does happen that we fall into that trap and we repeat some of the errors but as we look the Passover in the eyes so to speak as we have been informed during this period to you know, self-examine yourself and your relationship with God. It's an opportune time for each and every one of us to have an introspection as we try to be a better person for the edification of the church, to the glory of God, and to strengthen our own spiritual walk. 
very opportune time, two weeks, 20 days away. I'm looking at the churches in Revelation, the message to the churches. And there's so much lessons that we can glean from them as we have our eyes set on this marriage supper of the Lamb. These, bear in mind, these were not false churches. These were the churches of God in their own time. So I want to spend a few minutes on these churches because I believe they're packed with examples of what was going on in the church. We see parallels there today as well. In Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a leading city in Asia Minor, typical of what is happening in our cities today in terms of um, developments or well, not infrastructure, but just the way in their time compared to now it was modern and, you know, an area where people flow to because of the, of the attractions there in terms of what it had to offer. So we see in Revelation 2 how God praised the church at Ephesus. Yes, he praised them. They did a good job distinguishing between false teachers and true teachers. But something was going down in Ephesus. Again, let us, let, us, let us keep our eyes on some of these examples. To the angel in Ephesus write these things. He that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. And how thou cannot bear them which are evil. They didn't stand up to evil. I mean, they didn't tolerate evil. They stood up to it and said, no, we don't want it here. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and they are not. They tested the false teachers who walked in and said, uh-uh. No, you're not. Those who claim to be apostles, they said, no, no, you're not. Today we have them too, parading, coming all different stripes, walking in from time to time. You know, we see a parallel there going on too. They have found them to be liars. And has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, Ephesus, I have a grouse against you. I have something against you. You have left my first love. I've seen a lot of commentaries about what this first love is. And I'm looking into the context of what we've been saying since I started talking here. About the harlotry, the faithlessness, and the divorce that God had to offer to Israel. What is this first love? I'm reminded of what Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven tells us. And even there, even in the commandments, as well, the first four tells us how to love God. He is the first love. Cannot be the second. He has to be the first. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
We give everything. God doesn't take second place. He's first. If you put your family before him, it's idolatry. He has to take precedence over everything in your life. And I think that's a challenge we have with Christianity today. Because, and I'm speaking to an educated audience here. I'm not saying you. We put things before God. And once you do that, God is not first. God comes second or third and so on. But listen, Matthew, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, everything. All your life, all your mind. Second John 6 tells us, because God himself asks, and he says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. How do we show love to God? By keeping his commandments. And the first four we know show love towards God. Second John 6 says love walking in the truth and keeping the commandments. But Ephesus, they had everything else. But they didn't have this or they lacked this. So he says in verse 5, Remember therefore from whence you have fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto you quickly and remove your candlestick, your light. The light that you've been shining with with all the characteristics of of, that God expects with with your patience and so on. I'm going to remove that except you repent. Except you repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So they had that in common. And then he says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said unto the churches. To him that are overcome, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise of God. So that was what was going down in Egypt. They were doing all these things and they had all these things. But the first love, that commitment that God is number one, seemed to have been lacking. Not that they didn't show it, but it, was, it, it, it raised cause for concern in God's eyes. You know, by the time John wrote the book of Revelation, which was around in the 90s AD, maybe anywhere between 90, 95, even up to 100 AD, the church was challenged. A lot of hearsays, a lot of doctrines creeping in, everybody coming with a narrative, everybody coming with a new revelation. You must listen to me because I'm an apostle and blah, blah, blah. That's why John wrote about this here, that they came in. But Ephesus was intolerant these distractions but yet they lack something that God found out Smyrna 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 was a church described as faithful also in trials faithful in trials because what in Smyrna the church faced Roman persecution the mighty Roman Empire where, where, where the empire is God And if you're not a Roman citizen, you're nothing. You're trash. 
So he has a prosperous city, but it's known for its faithfulness as well. Verse 9, I know your works. And verse 8, backing up, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, say the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know your works. So in each one of these churches, God always says, I know what's going on. Don't think I don't know what's going on. The tribulation and the poverty. You are rich. I know the blasphemy of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogues of Satan the devil. But none of these things which thou shalt suffer, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. That was what was going on in Rome. Christians were being persecuted. There's an early Roman historian, Pliny the Younger, or some people say Pliny the Younger, because he was, he was alive up to around 65 AD. You read some of his letters, you see where the emperor sent him to spy on the Christians. And he would come back and write all these things to the emperor. How these people are faithful. That they met at this particular spot every week. And they worship this God. This Christos. And the emperor would act on that exchange from Pliny. It's amazing. And they were persecuted. A lot of them for that. So that was going on. But in verse 10... There is a fundamental statement here that I want you to take note of. He says, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. If you have your eyes on this marriage supper, we keep these things in mind, that the tribulation is going to come tenfold or wherever. When we think everything is going smooth, no sudden destruction. When you think we don't have any challenges in your life, think again. As I would always say, if you are in the body of Christ and you don't have a tribulation in your life, watch yourself. Watch yourself. It's coming. may not be in, the t- in 2018, but at some point. Because the, the struggle from Eden, from the, what happened in, in, um, in the Garden of Eden right throughout this, the, the, the Bible, it's, it's a struggle of overcoming. I, I just read it here with the first church, that the child of God has to overcome. That is our, how our faith is going to be, be, be built. And listen to this statement, because he says, Be thou faithful unto Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So in other words, the child of God, we all have to be faithful to death. It's not about one save, always save. To death. And then you're going to get your crown of life. If you have an ear, let us hear that. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So in their trial, Smyrna, they were still faithful. But God says, you better be faithful unto death. So the lessons from Smyrna for us 
is to seek to endure despite what will come in the last days and what will be coming, what is coming upon the church now in this time of the end where we know anything to do with Yahweh seems to take second place. The lessons for us in helping to prepare this bride that Christ is going to marry and for our presence at that marriage supper is to stay true and faithful. Pergamos. Pergamos was regarded as a compromising church. It was a very modern society in, in Pergamos, highly literate, had the temples of Zeus and so on, Apollo, Athena, all of those temples were around. But the warning for Pergamos, it says, write these things, which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know your works, where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Satan's seat in the church? I know where your seat is, and that you hold fast my name, and has not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where sweet Satan dwells. So Satan's influence was around in the church. And compromise, of course, when that his presence is around and he has strong influence, people are going to compromise. We see it over and over in our modern times and in the so-called churches where churches are adopting to the whims and fancies of society because, oh, our numbers are going down, so we have to tailor our message to suit people's, um, you know, tastes. So we water down the truth of God. Smyrna made that error. They watered down the truth because Satan, they allow Satan to come in. And when you allow Satan to come in your life, you think he's going to back out? Even when you don't allow him to come, he wants to come. So you can imagine when you open up to compromise, you know, maybe we should, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk too much about this teaching because it offends people or it's too harsh. You know, maybe, maybe we should tone down a bit so we can get in people. That is going on out there. But it should not be named in the church of God. The lessons here from Pergamos, the compromising church. They had the stumbling blocks. Yes, God says, I have a few things against you because they're them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam was a false teaching who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. We know that story. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Temple prostitution was going on. All of these strange beliefs were creeping in. The beliefs of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which God says he hates. And then he advises Pergamos, repent or I will come to you quickly. I will fight against them with the sword of your mouth. Again, he says, if you have a hear to, uh, an ear to hear, 
you better hear. And against the, again the admonition, to him that overcome will I give to eat of hidden manna. Hidden manna, life, which will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. So here's the underlying message of overcoming, of, 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 of being faithful. Of being faithful. Because there's a bigger picture ahead of us. There is this thing. There's this experience coming. When all, this, all the children of God. Will be gathered for this great supper. You can imagine. You can imagine. Oftentimes I think about this. You know, People who have passed on before me. I didn't. Sometimes you forget their names. Coming back to life. Coming to this grand reunion. Reunion. To witness Jesus Christ marrying his bride. And that you are a part of this faithful bride. Gives a lot of, you know, food for thought. A lot of inspiration as well. So Pergamos had a spirit of compromising the truth in the name of tolerance. Posed many challenges for the brethren who had fallen into the trap of being deceived, because, you know, anywhere Satan is, deception is. So the doctrines left by the the apostolic era was being watered, were being watered down. Being watered down. Thyatira. Thyatira was the corrupt church. Corrupt church. Write to the angel in Thyatira. These things says the Son of God who has the eyes like unto a flame of fire. And his feet are like fine brass. This is who we worship. This is the God we pay homage to. It's not a tree. It's not, a, it's not an animal. It's not some inanimate object. Or it's not some prophet who claims to have visions. This is the God we worship. With flames, with eyes like fire just from a, a i mean we are physical so we can only see through this physical realm here because this god is so awesome he's beyond our dimension he's a spirit but we are seeing him through physical eyes here when he talks about his eyes being a flame of fire and fine brass he says i know your works oh you have the charity you have all these great things you cook for the poor and you feed them on the street and you go into the poor neighborhoods and you give them food. The soup kitchens, I don't know if they had any during that time, but whatever it was, they had great charity. Doing good works, nothing is wrong with that. They had service. And they had faith as well. And they had patience as well. God says, I know your works. The last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding that, Tyrathyra, I have a few things against you because you suffered the woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. Brethren, this was happening in the church of God? In the church? You know, Jezebel has a connotation to it, the name Jezebel. 
in my village where I grew up, if someone called a lady a Jezebel, wow, that a stigma attached to that person for the rest of their life. It's like a kind of mark of the beast. It's a terrible thing to be called a Jezebel. Because of the biblical story, of course. But in Thyatira, look what was happening. Wow. They allowed the woman Jezebel. She said she was a prophetess. And she was seducing my servants, not somebody from outside of the church, servants in the church. Who? To do what? To commit fornication. Whether that was the literal fornication or some polluting of the gospel or whatever it was. And to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she did not repent. She did not repent. Behold, I will cast her into a bed with them that commit adultery. So God is always serious about this adultery thing, you know. The adultery is not just—it's it, not just a man cheating on his wife or a wife cheating on his husband or you know on her husband. It's about doctrinal things. It's about putting other gods before him. That's just like what we see with Israel, the false gods and the false teachings and so on. And what God says He's going to do? Wow! I will kill her children with death. With diseases, whatever forms it comes in. You know, nowadays you see some children meeting some horrible ways of death. And it's sad, it's sad. You don't know. People ask, where, where, where is your God? Where is your God when they had a shooting in Florida the other day? Where is he? Where was he? Was he asleep? That he couldn't intervene? People ask these questions. And when they don't get the answers that they are looking for, they go somewhere else to embrace maybe some other Eastern religion or anything. But the counter question I would ask them is, after you have kicked out God out of your life, after you have kicked him out of every social institution you can think about, and after you have embraced some other gods, why are you calling on the God of the Bible? You expect he's going to come to you now that you have kicked him out of every semblance of, of, of worship? And so these people have the audacity to ask those questions. Where was God when that 747 plunged into the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of the night in the cold waters of the Atlantic with babies crying? Where was your God? They will ask you these questions. And they are pertinent questions. They are pertinent questions. They are real questions. As a faithful child of God, you should be able to, to stand up and counter with those questions. Is God in your life? Is he calling you? Have you responded? Do you pay homage to him? Do you stand up for him? If not, why are you calling on his name? Why? Terrible things are going on. But Christ says, I will kill your children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which search the reins and hearts and I will give every one of you according to your works. So you show all the works that you stand up for God and he will stand up for you because he promises in, your, in his word in Matthew 30. 
I will be with you to the end of the age. So you know the phrase? Put your put your heart where your mouth is or something like that. Or where your treasures are. You will if you have your relationship with God and you have that spirit of obeying God, of obeying God. God cannot lie. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Paul tells us in Second Thessalonians two fifteen. That message rings in your ears. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Spiritual compromise leads to spiritual corruption. That was what was happening in the corrupt church at Thyra. Thyra. Now we have a church. Another one. Sardis. The dead church. It's what it was regarded as the dead church. Not a lot of comments were made about this church. We know Sardis was once a famous city in crafts and arts and culture, very culturally aware and so on. You know, but when societies seem to have this cultural awareness, what creeps in is a lot of social things rubbing off on the church. But God says, I know your works, chapter 3, verse 1, and I have a, you have a name that thou livest, but guess what, Sardis? You're dead. You're alive in name only. You are dead. So what? You better be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that you that are ready to die for. I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how my time is running out. How remember therefore how I've received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon you. Of course we read in Matthew and other synoptic gospels of, you know, Christ coming as a thief in the night. And one would want to think that, yes, he's going to creep upon the world as a thief in the night. That's true. Because the world is not going to be looking for him. But for the child of God, if we are not careful, we are going to be caught unawares as well. This is the message to Sardis, you better watch. Be watchful. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on you as a thief in the night, and thou shalt know, n- not know what hour I will come upon you. For thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. Ah, oh, so there were some there who were still faithful to God. And he said what? They shall walk with me in white. In other words, they will be at this marriage supper as well. For they are worthy. They are worthy. He that overcomes, another critical statement again. Because here again we see in this, in this, this um, exposition of these churches, this theme just running in throughout. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in right raiment. 
and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Okay. So we agree our names are in the book of life. Right? I know my name is in there. And a child of God who has God's Holy Spirit, that your name is there too. But guess what? Christ says, I will. He can blot it out. If Sardis, if you don't do this, I'm going to blot out your name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If you have an ear to hear, let us hear. Let us hear. Philadelphia, and I have to run quickly with these churches here. Write these things. He that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens. And um, no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens. I know your works. I have set before you, an, before you an open door, that no man can shut it. Thou was a little strength, and thou hast kept my word, and has not denied my name. So, Philadelphia, you, 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 you're going on, in a way, yes, you're going on okay. But behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, but are not. But do lie, behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and I know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. So God is telling Philadelphia, Philadelphia, you're going on okay. So you know what? I'm going to be with you, even you in these terrible times that are going to come upon the earth. Futuristic, of course, from this point of view. I'm going to do it. And I'm coming quickly. So you know what, Philadelphia? Hold fast which you have, that no man take your crown. Oh, so someone can take my crown. Of course, but hold fast to the faithfulness that you have in me. He that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. This symbolizes truth. The pillar of truth. In the temple of God, he shall go no more out. I will write upon the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. That is where the marriage supper will be. Which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write him upon my new name. If you have an ear, here, let's hear. And then Laodicea. Laodicea. Some commentators say, well, you know, the church in the last days could be Laodicea. What is going on? I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm just looking at it here from the, the perspective of what we as faithful people should be doing as we prepare for the great return of Jesus Christ, as well as this marriage supper of the Lamb. The angel of the church in Laodicea write these things that there is a strong message, I believe, in this for the end time church. The faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works. Wow. But guess what? You're neither cold nor hot. Hmm. I don't know what to do with you. You ever, you ever take a cup of coffee or tea and you start to drink it? The tea is neither cold and it's neither hot. You don't know what to do with it. Whether you should drink it. Whether you should warm it. Or make it get hotter. 
Or maybe just discard of it because you, you, you just don't know what to do with it. Just remind me of what is going on here. God says, Laodicea, you're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. I can't drink lukewarm tea. So because you're neither cold nor hot, guess what? I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. When you, when you spew something out of your mouth, when you spit it out, you don't want it in your system. You want to get rid of it. So that's what I'm going to do. I don't want it. It's lukewarm. I don't want it. Guess what? I think you better, it's, you, you decide whether you want it hot, whether you're going to be hot, whether you're going to be cold. And I believe that is the message facing the church in the 21st century. The church of God. The first century church which was on fire for God. They turned the world upside down. That's what we are told. Is that happening today? They turned the world upside down. They were on fire. Are we falling into this lukewarmness? Are we in that lukewarmness? Are we so hot as a church that God is seeing it and knows it? You be the judge. You be the judge. Because you say I'm rich, yes, we have all this wealth, we have all the goods. We don't need anything. We don't need God. I, I live in an economy with, with GDP high and unemployment rate at 4%. And the dollar is reasonable. I can go across the board and shop and do all kind of things. I can afford a vacation wherever I want to go. Who needs God in this day and age? That's the perception in society. I don't need any God when things are booming, when the economy is booming, when the economy is God. Of course, the economy is good. We need it to su sustain our lives. We live here. We are not of the world. We are just passing through. But it's good when the economy is booming. It's good when housing prices are low. And children can, growing up a younger generation, can afford a house. Of course it's good. But when we step on that level where we are going to question, or we are going to propose, or we are going to say, who needs God in this day and age? Who needs to go to church? Church people are a bunch of fanatics and... You know, people living in an illusionary world. When it reaches that level, then we as a church, we are not saying that, but when we see that happening, we know here is a parallel to what was going on in Philadelphia. They had need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what they were. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. All the tribulation, all the testing. That's what I want you to go through. That you may be rich, white in raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with salve. That thou mayest see. Brethren, Laodicea had a medical school. Not, not sorry, not, yeah, Laodicea had a medical school in their time. Whatever the school was, whether they were experimenting with bush medicine or whatever it was. But they had a medical school. It was advanced society. Industries, they had industries. Wool was a big thing. Clothing industry. 
So you see the language here being quoted about white garments and nakedness and all of that. They had all of those things. So this, they thought they needed nothing because they had it all. But the word of God says, Laodicea, repent. Repent. I'm standing at this door. You better knock. I'm ready here waiting because you have some work to do. To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit in my throne, and so on. And he has that and has the, an ear to hear, and so on. So, brethren, as I come to shortly to a close, and we've come through this journey, although in brief, going back to what went down in Eden, in light of the question that Jesus Christ asked, will I find faith among my people? In light of the Passover is coming, this great event. And in light of his statement that he's looking forward to the time when he's going to sip of this cup, symbolic, of course, of the Passover, the fruit of the vine, his blood. And that there is a, there's an organism here on earth called the church, which is going to be his bride, his chaste bride, virgin bride, that he's going to marry and I am, a, I am a tiny part of this bride. This faithful bride that he is looking to. And so I have my role. Whatever you see that, whatever you conceive that to be, however small, that I have to play in ensuring that this bride is prepared in everything to meet the groom. In ancient Israel, marriage contract had three phases the other two seemingly have gone by with the marriage contract the you know the the the, the bridegroom would stay away for a year and they come back go to the the to the um the home of the the bridegroom of the bride there'll be a torchlight march in the streets and so on and then we come to this final phase of it now where the groom comes back to marry his bride. I consider myself lucky, privileged, and you should too, that you are part of this bride, this first fruit of this harvest that is coming to marry. So the Passover is a very good time now to reflect on your place in the church, in this organism known as the bride. To know what faithless Israel came through after all what God had done for them. firsthand, they saw it and they still rebelled. They disobeyed. They were taken into captivity. God divorced them but he still keeps saying, you know what? I'm a forgiven. I will take you back. Although you were a whore, I will take you back. Nowadays it's the same thing. No matter how horrible the sins are, just like scarlet, they can become as white as snow. That's what, that what, what our God is telling the world as we try to reach the call out ones out there with this message of mercy, a God whose mercy endures forever. We want to tell them, listen, I, want, I would wish that we all sit, we'll be able to sit at this great event when Christ marries the church 
at this marriage suffer that I'm privileged that I have answered my RSVP and that I'm going to be here. That I don't want my name to be blotted out, out of the book of life. That I'm going to be faithful to death so that I can crown or can claim rather my glory. He said in Revelation 9.19, John, write John, write John, these words are true. They are the true saying. This is not fiction. This is not dreamed up arguments. These words are true. And God cannot lie. He cannot lie. He's coming. Because John says he saw it. I saw heaven open. A white horse. Revelation 19.11 He that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth make war. His eyes like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew. But he himself was clothed with vesture. Dipped in blood. And his name called the word of God. Jesus Christus. Yeshua Hamashiach. And verse 16. He had on his vesture. And on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And I can Im- I'm just waiting to hear that, that, that echoing, that, that resonating sound of this angel. When he shouts and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven. And this fowls is not just birds up there. Every creature. When he's going to say, come, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Brethren, I can hardly wait for this time. There are many people out there who we need to reach with this wonderful message of a faithful God who is coming back. to a, He's expecting to come back to a faithful church. And I have work to do to make this church faithful, the faithful bride that Jesus Christ is coming to marry. Because he tells me, he tells us in verse 9, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we are blessed people. And we thank God. So do have a wonderful Passover and may God be with you till we meet again. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.